Welcome to Charleston Time Machine. I'm Nick Butler, historian at the Charleston County Public Library. At the beginning of the 18th century, South Carolina's colonial government raised a fortified trace of earthen walls and moats around the nucleus of urban Charleston. These defensive works constrained the town's growth for more than 20 years, but then quietly vanished before a burst of civic expansion in the mid-1730s. Questions of when and why the earthworks were dismantled have baffled generations of historians and inspired competing theories. In today's program, we'll unpack the forgotten story of government neglect that gradually reduced the walled city during the late 1720s. Over the past several years, I've crafted a number of podcast essays about Charleston's early fortifications. My goal has been to explain not only the chronology of the urban fortifications, but also the broader historical context that defined their rise and fall. The principal source for this information is the extant manuscript journals of South Carolina's provincial government, augmented by related government documents, which I've examined in numerous visits to the South Carolina Department of Archives and History in Columbia over the past two decades. As I described in episode number 230, for example, records created during the early years of the 18th century provide a relatively clear picture of when and why civic leaders decided to enclose the colonial capital within a network of walls surrounded by a moat. Fear of an imminent Spanish attack in late 1703 inspired the provincial government to appropriate funds for the rapid construction of the Charleston Enceinte a fortified enclosure, which was effectively completed by the end of 1704. Similarly, government records created over the ensuing three decades contain numerous references to the repair and maintenance of the brick curtain wall along the east side of East Bay Street and the earthen walls enclosing the south, north, and west sides of Charleston. The extant documents might not contain as many details as we'd like to see, but they represent a nearly continuous paper trail for tracing the evolution of the town's early fortifications. Some years ago, while reading through South Carolina's legislative journals of the 1720s and early 1730s for the first time, I expected to find the text of a discussion regarding the fate of Charleston's earthen walls. The provincial government used tax revenue to build and maintain the enceinte surrounding the capital, so I imagine that its removal would require some act of government, like a resolution, ordinance, or statute. I found no such discussion, however, nor any sort of act or decree that might have triggered the demolition of the public earthworks. By the time I reached the legislative journals of the mid-1730s, I found discussions of extending Church Street, Dock Street, Bay Street, Trad Street, and Broad Street beyond the boundaries of the fortifications created 30 years earlier. The earthen walls were evidently gone by 1733, but I found no explanation of how or when they disappeared. Turning to secondary sources for help, I discovered that no historical text published in the past three centuries offered a reliable answer to the puzzle of Charleston's disappearing fortifications. In fact, some observers living in the 18th century published inaccurate solutions to the question. 
For example, the well-known map printed in London in 1739, titled The Ichnography of Charlestown at High Water, depicts the outline of the fortified walls that formally constrained the south, north, and west sides of the town. A caption printed in the lower left corner of the map states that, quote, the double lines represent the enceinte as fortified by the inhabitants for their defense against the French, Spaniards, and Indians. Without it, that is, outside it, were only a few houses, and these not thought safe till after the signal defeat of the Indians in the year 1717, at which time the north, west, and south sides were dismantled and demolished to enlarge the town, end quote. That text is definitely inaccurate, however, because extant legislative records demonstrate South Carolina's provincial government maintained the earthen fortifications of Charleston for several years beyond 1717. Another brief statement about the removal of Charleston's earthen fortifications appears within an essay about defending South Carolina, published in The Gentleman's Magazine of London in 1745. Quote, in Queen Anne's War, that is, at the beginning of the 18th century, this place was strengthened by tolerable works on the land side, which were raised by General Nicholson, when governor, to oblige some of his particular friends. End quote. Francis Nicholson was appointed governor of South Carolina in the autumn of 1720 and held that title until his death in March 1728, but he actually resided in Charleston between May of 1721 and May of 1725. The essay published 20 years later implies that Nicholson was somehow responsible for demolishing the earthworks in the mid-1720s, either by executive decree or by steering the provincial legislature towards that end. The extant government papers from that period do not support this theory, however, although Governor Nicholson was certainly involved in the process. Over the past decade, I've reread the extant legislative journals of the 1720s multiple times and combed archives in London searching for obscure records that might illuminate this history mystery. The answer, it turns out, was embedded in the legislative journals of the mid-1720s that I had initially consulted. It did not leap off the page, but it came into focus after I revisited the clues and considered the broader context. Charleston's first earthen walls faded out of existence over a period of several years, and the facts related to their disappearance form a rather complex narrative. For the first time in 300 years, the real story can now be told. As I mentioned earlier, the Charleston enceinte was effectively completed by the end of 1704. Nine years later, in September 1713, a powerful hurricane caused extensive damage to the town's urban defenses. No repairs were made before another hurricane swept across Charleston in September 1714 and further weakened the fortifications. South Carolina's provincial government appropriated money to repair the town's defenses at the end of 1714, but a succession of misfortunes retarded that work in the ensuing years. The outbreak of the Yamasee War in April 1715, for example, threatened the survival of the South Carolina colony. While the General Assembly appropriated money for soldiers and weapons to quell the Native American revolt, hundreds of settlers living across the Lowcountry fled to Charleston for protection. 
the provincial government made modest repairs to the urban fortifications during the two-year war to render the capital a safe haven against Indian attack. The Yamasee War disrupted the agriculture and trade of South Carolina and wrecked the local economy. Charleston's defensive works were apparently in a low state of repair when Blackbeard and other pirates harassed the capital in 1718, at which time the legislature scarcely had sufficient resources to defend the port. The situation deteriorated further when Carolinians learned that Britain had declared war against Spain in the late summer of 1718. Rumors of Spanish forces assembling at Havana to launch an attack on Charleston in the autumn of 1719 panicked South Carolinians, who felt that the Lord's proprietors were not contributing sufficient funds to defend the colony. Their frustration led to a coup d'etat that December, known as the Revolution of 1719, that deposed Governor Robert Johnson. In a letter to the British Board of Trade, written a few weeks after the coup, the rebel leaders who had usurped the government of South Carolina sent a brief description of the capital fortifications. Quote, Charlestown is the only town and port in the province whose fortifications being much damaged by storms and the great guns dismounted and everything relating to the preservation of the government wholly abandoned to negligence and confusion and the inhabitants finding themselves disappointed by the ministry of the proprietors of the several methods they had taken to restore those fortifications were quite heartless and were ready sooner to quit the province than to be at any more expense about the defense of it, had they not been elevated and spirited by the late efforts made to have the government in His Majesty's hands, upon which they with heart and hand are repairing the fortifications upon the same, and all without the contribution of one penny by the proprietors." Francis Nicholson, appointed Provisional Royal Governor of South Carolina by King George I, arrived in Charleston in late May 1721 during a time of peace between Britain, Spain, and France. An experienced military officer, Nicholson took a keen interest in the provincial defenses, especially those within the capital. He evidently commissioned a local officer, Colonel John Herbert, to draft a plan of the fortifications surrounding urban Charleston, which Nicholson then sent to the Board of Trade in London. Herbert's pen and ink drawing, dated 27th of October 1721, entitled The Ichnography or Plan of the Fortifications of Charlestown, depicts a robust enceinte with numerous cannon posted in the several bastions and redans around the town. Herbert's plan appears to show a single drawbridge within the Ravelin, or fortified gateway, at the intersection of Broad and Meeting Streets, although the initial construction of that feature in 1704 included two drawbridges. Herbert's illustration of the Ravelin was evidently incomplete. Five months after he completed the drawing, in March of 1722, the South Carolina legislature resolved to fund repairs of, quote, the two drawbridges across the broad street, end quote. In short, the fortified enceinte created in 1704 was still largely intact in the spring of 1722. At the conclusion of a legislative session in June 1722, the South Carolina General Assembly ratified an act to incorporate the capital town and rebrand it 
Charles City and Port. The Act of Incorporation was a pet project initiated by Governor Nicholson, but it was immediately unpopular with the majority of local inhabitants. The city's odd municipal structure included hereditary offices and several features of questionable legality, all of which induced a number of citizens to lobby contacts in England to cancel the Act of Incorporation. In the meantime, the new government of Charles City and Port held jurisdiction over, quote, all lots, streets, lanes, highways, alleys, docks, wharves, quays, landings, and all the edifices, buildings, marketplaces, and burial places in Charlestown, together as they are laid out and distinguished in the grand model or plot of the town, end quote. Coincidentally, on the same day Governor Nicholson signed the Act of Incorporation, the Commons House of Assembly recorded a payment for repairs made to the drawbridge, singular. This notation in June 1722 is the last reference to the drawbridges that once stood within the fortified ravelin at the intersection of Meeting and Broad Streets. The gradual erasure of the drawbridges and earthen fortifications commenced with a powerful hurricane that swept across the Low Country in mid-September 1722. Having witnessed the violent winds and rain in Charles City and Port, Governor Nicholson and his advisory council observed that, quote, great damage has been done to the fortifications and front wall thereof, and several pieces of timber, plank, and iron spikes, etc., has fallen down from the same, end quote. After the storm, the executive cabinet ordered, quote, that an advertisement be immediately published strictly forbidding all persons whatsoever in His Majesty's name from taking, carrying away, or destroying any of the said timber, plank, ironwork, or other materials belonging to the said fortifications and front wall upon pain of being prosecuted with the utmost severity of the law and that all officers and all other persons whatsoever be thereby further ordered and required to use their utmost diligence in preserving and securing the aforesaid timber and other materials for the use and service of His Majesty and this, His province. When the provincial legislature convened in early November 1722, Governor Nicholson summarized the state of the urban fortifications in the following words. The late rains and winds have done us some damage in the fortifications of this city fronting the river. According to my duty, I endeavored to secure the guns, etc. Also, there is some damage to those on the land side, and to prevent the stockades, etc., from being stolen, I had the loose ones secured, and this has been done without any public charge. And I must do the inhabitants of this city and port justice that they, by themselves or slaves, readily and cheerfully did the work. I think everybody ought to own, that is, acknowledge, that the fortifying of this place was a great work in all respects, but time, the devourer of all things, hath much damnified the same. And what shall be done in these affairs, I leave it wholly to the assembly." The Commons House of Assembly then appointed a committee to consider ways and means of repairing the capital's defenses. 
Their report, submitted in late November 1722, noted that the fortifications at Charles City and at Fort Johnson on James Island were out of repairs and will require a very large sum to put them in a good posture. Considering the lingering debts incurred during the Yamasey War, the necessity of funding several frontier forts against French, Spanish, and Indian incursions, and, quote, the great losses the inhabitants have suffered by the violence of the late winds and rain, end quote, the committee opined that it would be impossible to raise the necessary funds to repair the fortifications by means of a general tax levied on the inhabitants. The Commons House therefore resolved to fund the repairs by printing more paper money, a form of government credit that had commenced in South Carolina in 1703. Governor Nicholson rejected the proposal to print additional bills of credit, however, because the British government had specifically instructed him to reduce the volume of paper currency circulating within the colony. While elected representatives argued with the governor about funding methods during the winter of 1722-23, the damaged fortifications moldered. In mid-February 1723, Governor Nicholson reminded the members of the Commons House to consider some appropriation for repairing the fortifications of the capital, quote, for unless there be something done about them, I expect they will be quite ruined and never a stockade left, end quote. The House replied that a committee appointed to investigate the matter had recommended an appropriation of £2,000 for repairing the front fortifications of Charles City and removing the posts on the back of the city to be placed on the front and for providing ballast stones to protect the waterfront brick fortifications from erosion. This simple proposal, though devoid of technical detail and political gravity, represents a major turning point in the story of the walled city. Because the governor blocked the plan to print paper money to repair all of the fortifications in urban Charleston, the elected representatives resolved to appropriate a relatively small sum of tax revenue to repair only the brick curtain wall and bastions fronting the Cooper River waterfront. To minimize expenses, the government proposed to remove an unknown number of wooden posts from the earthworks surrounding the back of the city and plant them in the mud before the curtain wall as a sacrificial revetment to be backfilled with ballast stones taken from British merchant ships. With the consent of Governor Nicholson and his advisory council, the Commons House adopted the plan to transfer wooden posts from the back walls of Charles City to the front wall along the Cooper River waterfront. The House also advised Nicholson that the £2,000 in question ought to be paid into the chamber, or treasury, of the said city, because the municipal chamberlain, or treasurer, Charles Hill, had, quote, offered his services in paying that money to various laborers without expecting anything for his trouble, end quote. The governor and his advisory council then assented to the plan, which also proposed that, quote, the mayor, alderman, and common council of Charles City may have the disposal of the said money and be empowered to contract with proper persons for that service, end quote. The plan to effectively abandon the capital's earthen fortifications for the sake of economy apparently did not sit well with some members of the Commons House. 
One week after adopting the plan in February 1723, the House resolved to appropriate an additional sum of 8,000 pounds in newly stamped paper bills of currency, quote, for building fortifications in Charles City, end quote. In a message to Governor Nicholson, the Speaker of the House explained, quote, that it is the policy of all wise governments to fortify themselves in time of peace in order to their better defense in time of war, and the fortifications of this city not being sufficient to protect the same, we are come to a resolution to give 8,000 pounds over and above the 2,000 pounds already given to raise proper forts for the better defense thereof. End quote. Nicholson and his advisory council immediately rejected the new proposal, however, because it contradicted British orders to reduce the volume of paper currency in South Carolina. Funds to repair the fortifications, said the executive branch, would have to come from, quote, a general tax upon the inhabitants of this province, end quote. Because the Commons House refused to levy additional taxes to fund the necessary repairs, the earthen walls were doomed. That fact must have been obvious to the members of the legislature and the inhabitants of Charles City at that time. On the 22nd of February, 1723, the Commons House heard a report from a committee appointed to view and examine the new plat of Charles City, the fruit of a major re-survey of urban Charleston commissioned by the city's act of incorporation eight months earlier. As elected leaders considered the future of the colonial capital, the committee recommended that, quote, in case the back fortifications are demolished, that the proprietors of those lots who receive satisfaction for the damage done to their lots by the said fortifications in 1704 may have their lots again after paying back to the public the money received by them, end quote. In short, the legislators of 1723 were already envisioning a city landscape devoid of fortifications. The funds appropriated in February of 1723 to repair the urban fortifications were delivered to the officers of Charles City and Port, who evidently spent the money as the provincial government had ordered. No record survives of precisely what they did, but their work initiated the process of demolishing the earthen fortifications of the walled city. The wooden posts removed from the fortifications along the south, north, and west sides of the city apparently formed a linear revetment, that is, a continuous or nearly continuous row of upright or raked posts planted along the inside or outside or both sides of the earthen walls to prevent the mounded earth from sloughing away. As such, the posts were an important structural feature of the earthworks, and their removal compromised the integrity of the walls. The militia officers superintending the urban artillery evidently recognized that the unsupported earthworks were no longer defensible. By the autumn of 1723, laborers had moved all the wooden posts from the back fortifications to the front curtain wall and transferred all the cannon from the city's west and north walls to the waterfront bastions. On the 6th of October, 1723, news arrived from London that the king's lawyers had canceled and repealed South Carolina's act to incorporate Charles City and Port. Charles City immediately reverted to unincorporated Charles Town, and the short-lived municipal government ceased to exist. 
The city chamberlain's financial records, which likely contain details about important modifications to the fortifications, disappeared soon afterwards. In December 1723, the report of a committee appointed to inspect the fortifications stated that the armory within Granville Bastion housed, quote, some old gates timber and old iron which came from the back part of the town, end quote. That is, the remnants of the old gate at the intersection of Broad and Meeting Streets, which evidently had been dismantled. The same report mentioned a, quote-unquote, tumbling-down structure called Yours Fort, likely synonymous with the earlier Ashley Bastion, which still housed a few cannon. In contrast, the several great guns placed along the east side of East Bay Street at that time, slightly north of Granville Bastion, were identified as having been taken out of the southwest bastion, that is, Colleton Bastion, near the intersection of Trad and Meeting Streets. Similarly, Craven Bastion, in December 1723, included several small cannons that had been removed out of the Northwest Bastion, that is, Carteret Bastion, near the intersection of Meeting Street and Horlback Alley. These brief notations represent the last reference to the western bastions of the Charleston enceinte. In February 1724, Governor Nicholson recommended to the Commons House, among other things, quote, that immediate and effectual care be taken concerning the fortifications of Charlestown and the ballast, end quote. After considering how to preserve all of the town's fortifications with as little expense as possible, the Commons House adopted an order or ordinance, quote, that no person in this province at their utmost peril do presume to wheel cart, or by any other means or ways, carry away any earth or lands from any of the banks which were late the fortifications round Charlestown, or from any street or public lot or place in the said town for any use or purpose whatsoever, end quote. The governor and his advisory council concurred with this order later the same day and directed the provost marshal to promulgate the message throughout the town. To underscore its importance, the General Assembly included this order in a law enforcement statute ratified four days later. The penultimate clause of that law imposed a fine of 10 pounds currency on, quote, all and every person or persons that shall presume to take any dirt or land out of any street by cart, wheelbarrow, or by any other ways or means whatsoever, end quote. Another powerful hurricane caused damage across the low country of South Carolina in early August 1724 and damaged the infrastructure of urban Charleston. According to a letter from Governor Nicholson to the Board of Trade, the storm, quote, very much damaged the fortifications in this place, end quote, and probably hastened the erosion of the unsupported earthworks. Seven months later, in March 1725, the South Carolina Commons House debated the possibility of appropriating 50 pounds out of the Treasury, quote, towards building a bridge over the marsh from the White Point to the south end of Church Street, and also 50 pounds for building a bridge from Craven's Bastion at the north end of Bay Street to the lots to the north part of the town, end quote. The upper House of Assembly dismissed the two proposed bridges, however, not because the south and north walls blocked the streets in question, but because, quote, the streets cannot be continued without alterations of the lots of several persons now absent from the province whose consent ought to be had thereto, end quote. 
an inventory of the artillery mounted in urban Charleston in December 1725 described the waterfront defenses on the east side of the Bay Street in some detail, but ignored the bastions and redans on the south, north, and west sides of the town. A similar report made in January 1727 mentions a few cannon remaining at Eor's Fort, or Bastion, which was then described as being quite out of repair but it does not mention any of the other works standing on the back of the town. In fact, the 1727 report states that, quote, the other part of the fortifications, from yours bastion round the back part of the town to Craven's bastion, are almost leveled and in no manner defensible, end quote. The Commons House voted to spend money repairing the waterfront brick fortifications in early 1727, but provided no funds to preserve the disappearing earthen walls on the back of the town. South Carolina's provincial government debated the need to repair Charleston's fortifications during a brief quasi-war with Spain, 1727-1729, but political dysfunction derailed their efforts and paralyzed the legislative process for several fruitless years. Meanwhile, powerful hurricanes in August 1728 and August 1730 caused further damage to Charleston's waterfront curtain wall and no doubt contributed to the erosion of what remained of the town's neglected earthen walls. The British Crown's purchase of the Carolina colonies from the Lord's proprietors in 1729 placed South Carolina on a more stable footing as a royal property, and the return of Governor Robert Johnson in December 1730 initiated a more productive political environment in the spring of 1731. The local economy stabilized immediately, and the government collected significant revenue from taxes and other duties, but the General Assembly spent no new funds on defensive fortifications during a period of peace with France and Spain. In April 1732, four months after the debut of Charleston's first weekly newspaper, the Speaker of the Commons House, Robert Hume, published a two-part notice that represents the last known reference to the town's earthen entrenchments. The first part cited a clause from the Statute of February 1724 that imposed a fine on persons, quote, that shall presume to take away dirt or land out of any street by cart, wheelbarrow, or by any other ways or means whatsoever, end quote. In the second part of his notice, Hume threatened to prosecute, quote, sundry persons who, notwithstanding the said act, have lately and still do continue to dig up and carry away the dirt in the streets where the trenches formerly stood, to the great injury of the owners of the lots fronting the same, end quote. Robert Hume's text confirms that some vestiges of the earthworks remained on the landscape of urban Charleston in the spring of 1732. More specifically, some unknown volume of earthen remnants stood within one or more of the town's public streets, either along the west side of Meeting Street, or perhaps at the south end of Church Street near the Baptist Meeting House, or the north end of Church Street just beyond St. Philip's Church, or at the west end of Trad Street by the future site of First Scott's Presbyterian Church, or at the west end of Dock Street, or at all of the above locations. Coincidentally, also in the spring of 1732, the Commons House appointed a committee to investigate the prospects of regulating, or actually discovering, the legal boundaries of Dock Street. 
The earthen fortifications created in 1704 had long blocked the intersection of Dock and Meeting Streets, but in February 1733, the legislature read a draft of a bill for altering the path of Dock Street and extending it westward to the Ashley River. A detailed committee report on that subject, submitted in September 1733, indicates that the junction of Dock and Meeting Streets was no longer obstructed the earthen walls were finally gone. After several more months of debating the trajectory of the new and improved version of Dock Street, the South Carolina General Assembly ratified a law in April 1734 that defined the street's boundaries and renamed it Queen Street. The transformation of Dock Street into Queen Street was one of several civic projects undertaken during the mid-1730s that followed the removal of the last remnants of Charleston's earthen walls. By the autumn of 1734, for example, East Bay Street no longer terminated at Craven's Bastion, now the site of the U.S. Customs House, where a narrow wooden bridge across Daniels Creek, now Market Street, facilitated passage northward to Rettsbury and The Hard. A food market was finally built in Charleston's Market Square in 1735, after workers dismantled the ravelin, drawbridges, and moat that once occupied the intersection of Meeting and Broad Streets. The southward extension of Church Street required the construction of a bridge over Vandross Creek, now Water Street. Government funding for that project was approved in the spring of 1736, and the bridge was finished before the end of 1737. In the absence of more robust descriptions of the removal of Charleston's earthen walls, the several street projects undertaken in the mid-1730s provide a sort of bookend to the story of the rise and fall of the Charleston enceinte, or walled city. The earthen berms and moat enclosing the south, north, and west sides of Charleston in 1704 did not disappear in a specific episode of purposeful demolition. Rather, a government decision to compromise the structural integrity of the walls in February 1723 triggered their gradual erasure. By removing the wooden posts that reinforced the earthen walls, the provincial government initiated a passive process now known as demolition by neglect. The earthen berms, once standing approximately 10 feet above the surface, slowly sloughed back into the moat from which they came and into the adjacent streets. Some of the dirt was pilfered by nearby residents seeking to fill low spots in their own private property, while the provincial government swept away the last vestiges of the earthen walls before the spring of 1733. The slow demise of Charleston's earthen walls between 1723 and 1733 marked the end of an era, but not the end of fortifications on the urban landscape. The brick curtain wall on the east side of East Bay Street endured for another 50-odd years, during which time South Carolina's provincial government commissioned a series of new defensive works on the south, north, and west sides of the expanding capital. We'll explore those projects in future programs as we continue to navigate the many layers of Charleston's colorful history. Charleston County Public Library is your home for local history. 
To explore our resources and programs, and to read an illustrated transcript of this podcast, point your web browser to ccpl.org. Thanks for listening to the Charleston Time Machine. This is Nick Butler, and I'll see you in the future.